0: everyone, just before we dive into today's episode, we wanted to share a couple of things. Firstly, today's guest did not make it easy to cut down the minutes, which is why we have chosen to release a longer episode than usual as we did not want any of you to miss out on all her insights regarding icons, success and all things Shahrukh. Secondly, there are some technical difficulties, please bear in mind that the recording took place during monsoon season in Delhi and again, we did not want to dilute today's conversation. So thank you all so much for understanding, and let's dive right in.
1: Hi everyone, and welcome back to Can You Hear's. My name is Monica, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I'm joined today by my co-anchor and wonderful Can You Hear's assistant producer,
0: Ragni. Hi, I'm Ragini, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. How's everything been with this week? Yeah, it's been it's been quite an exciting week. It's been sunny here in London, but I've been looking forward to this Sunday. I'm so excited for this conversation, and I cannot wait to get started. Likewise, let's dive in. Mm-hmm.
1: Before getting into the topic of our last episode of the season, we wanted to acknowledge that Can You Hear Us does not represent all Black, Indigenous, women, and femme of color and that we can only speak from our experiences and perspective. But we strive for inclusivity in all our conversations, our team, and our guests. We are always open to feedback from all of our listeners. And with that, I'll hand it back to you, Ragni. Thanks, Monica.
0: When looking back at our episodes, we realized that our most repeated question revolves around one concept, imposter syndrome. What is it? How does it manifest? And how have our guests navigated it? Most importantly, how have they faced it as Biwalk and what implications has that had on them personally and professionally? Each answer has brought us a different perspective to the question and highlighted the complexities that women and fens, especially Black, Indigenous, and women of color, face continuously. So, in this season's final episode, we wanted to go to the core of Can You Hear Us's mission, highlighting Biwalk stories by focusing on the uniqueness of the Biwalk positionality within the common experience of being a woman, femme, or being perceived as female.
1: Thanks so much, Ragni. To kick off the discussion, let's review some stats very quickly. According to the HubSpot, an estimated 85% of employees feel incompetence at work despite their objective success, with 90% of women and 80% of men respectively, expressing this sentiment. One of the main causes of imposter syndrome is a lack of representation. Clinical psychologist Emily Hu echoes a sentiment in a BBC article by Cheryl Nance Nash. She says, and I quote, we're more likely to experience imposter syndrome if we don't see many examples of people who look like us or share our background clearly succeeding in our field. And that is especially true for Black and Indigenous people, for whom overall representation across almost all white colored fields is alarmingly low. In the same article, Nance Nash reminds us that and I quote, fewer than 5% of US corporate board seats are held by women of color, despite being 18% of the US population, with the only black woman ever to head a Fortune 500 company as CEO was Xerox's Ursula Burns until her departure in 2016. This may lead us to think that BiWalk have a higher propensity to imposter syndrome, and that that is inherently negative. Yet BiWalk are significant players in innovation. Some of many examples include Shirley Jackson, the creator of fiber optic cables, and Dr. Anne Tsukamoto and her stem cell isolation research. Nonetheless, the absence of women in a professional space is detrimental. Only looking at the women womenomics, McKinsey demonstrates that women participating in the economy, identically to men, would add up to $28 trillion U.S. trillion, or 26% to the annual global GDP, by 2025 compared to a business-as-usual scenario. This impact is roughly equivalent to the size of combining the US and the Chinese
0: economies today. Wow. Yeah, numbers, numbers don't lie, do they? So today on Can You Hear Us, we wanted to explore the genius that stems from the unique perspectives Biwark and international development bring, from the identification to the methodology and the conversations they instigate around social impact. And luckily, we have an amazing guest who can speak to this experience firsthand. The Can You Hear Us team is honored to have critically acclaimed author and development economist Shayana Bhattacharya joining us for our season finale. (laughs) Trained in development economics from Delhi University and Harvard University, Shayana Bhattacharya currently works as an economist in the World Bank's Social Protection and Labor Unit for South Asia. She is the author of the critically acclaimed book titled Desperately Seeking Sharukh India's Lonely Young Women and the Search for Intimacy and Independence. There are so many things that we love about Shayana, but one of the most important is her approach to research, in which she employs a female gaze to her work in trying to solve some of the world's largest problems, from social safety net policy to women's empowerment and gender equality. Welcome, Shayana. We are so happy to have you.
2: Thanks so much, Ragini. This is such a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Hi, Monica. And to everyone listening, uh, I'm really excited for our conversation.
0: Thank you. No, we're we're so excited as well. And let's just kick off with your incredible study in nonfiction book, Desperately Seeking Shah Rukh. So just for starters, for those that may not know, could you describe in a couple of sentences who Shah Rukh is, who Shah Rukh Khan is and what he represents to you?
2: Well you know I have a line in the book where I say you've probably been living under a rock if you don't know who Shah Rukh Khan is and uh, <laughs> you, you should know who Shah Rukh Khan is I agree uh, but 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 for those who don't firstly shame on you and uh, <laughs> I'm 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 actually quite unhappy that I have to give an introduction to him I mean I think the simplest way to put it is he sort of this as the tom cruise of india mm-hmm. i actually think business magazines like forbes would tell you that he's the biggest movie star in mm-hmm. the world in terms of his number of fans the films the fanfare mm-hmm. he is i think to me he represents three very important aspects and i sort of described this in the book in one of the early chapters One is he's very much South Asia's romantic superhero, right? Um, His movies came out in the 1990s, right up to the 2000s. Really frame what I think a lot of men and women understand as very, you know, the hetero norms of the romantic game, right? It's very much about intimacy, how men and women court each other. I think he really frames that, that dialogue and that concept, that concept of love. I mean, so many people in India or in Pakistan or in Bangladesh. If you ask them about love and romance, his film songs and his scenes and his dialogues immediately pop up, right? So he's, I think that's one, which is he's very much our romantic superhero who really codifies this idea of intimacy and love for many generations. I think the second thing that he definitely represents is markets. Uh, He is essentially India's big superhero after the big economic structural reforms of the 1990s. And one of the things that happened following those reforms was... Telecom liberalized, right? So we had much more television content, there was satellite television, uh, you know, new channels, and all of this was a big shift from the world of just public broadcasting, uh, where you didn't really have that much content and that many shows and so on and so forth. And he really came onto the scene when the telecom boom happened, when India really started to grow. And many people, you know, the ones I interview will always say to me, he really marks a very important shift in India's economic history. And I think South Asia's economic history actually, uh, because he suddenly then was on your television all the time, selling you Pepsi, selling you different goods that just didn't exist earlier, right? That were just not available in the consumer market. Um, so I think he's very much a marker and a bearer of market reform in India. And the third thing, which I think he really represents, uh, is this idea of middle classhood. Uh, and by that, what I mean is, you know, many people, you know, many women I've interviewed and even men from very different communities, different economic circumstances, right from, you know, the India's precariat to our, you know, poshest people living in like the most palatial homes. Everyone will say to me that they really started understanding and discovering this idea of being middle class through his interviews, because he used to talk about it a lot at at an early stage in his career. And what that really meant was he was one of these people who came into the film industry without any network capital. He didn't really have... Anyone in the industry who was his, you know, family member, there were no known lines of contact who could help him gain success, and there is this idea that he's really, you know, sort of this very neoliberal marker of a man who's made it, right? So, so he really embodies middle class aspirations in that sense. And so I think he's he's all of those things, he's romance, he's a very different kind of masculinity, linked to romance, uh, fairly vulnerable, uh, cries a lot in his movies, is very open about his weaknesses in his interviews as well as the characters he plays. I think he's a bearer of India's market reform, and I think he's a bearer of this middle class story, this idea of middle class aspirations. The last thing I'll say, and I realize I've said a lot, is one thing that is very unique about him, at least which distinguishes him from other actors or celebrities, in the Indian landscape around the time he came into the films, is he's always in the kitchen. Uh, so even in his biggest hit, which is called Dilwale Dulhaniya Le Jaenge, I highly recommend people who haven't seen it should go see it. Um, you know, he, he a woman in a village told me this was the first time that she actually saw an actor chop vegetables in the kitchen in a film, uh, which was very unusual. And so many women will tell me that they see him perform domestic and emotional labor so it is a very different kind of masculinity that's more interested in care work as well and in fact the last interview he did which was on Netflix I think it was with David Letterman he was making chicken for David Letterman and his wife and this is unusual you know India is right now along with many South Asian countries in the bottom five of the world when it comes to men helping in housework so he really mirrors a very different kind of masculinity I think one that is interested in caring and loving and appreciates women's labors in a different way. So I think that's a sort of short synopsis of who he is um but people should just go watch his movies and
0: they'll know who he is <laughs> no I agree and I think like what you're saying about uh how he kind of represents the market and just kind of changes I can identify with that so much because just for me I think I something I notice a lot is how much of a not even generation just like a generation gap between me and my parents but also me and my grandparents, and yeah. Somehow, Shah Rukh movies seem to be something that we can all kind of come together. Like, Dilwale Dulhania Le Jayenge is something I've watched with my entire family. And it's actually through movies like that that I can even introduce concepts like feminism to my grandparents in the most, in the softest way possible, where it's actually as simple as, hey, you know, he's... He doesn't want. He wants to help out his wife in the kitchen. He if yes. they if she needs to fast for him, he will also fast for her. Just really simple ways of introducing these concepts to them. Yeah, no. So I find it. I find him. I find him to be a great kind of conversation point and kind of cultural uniter. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, and I mean, that's that's the book, Ragini. I think. For those who don't know the book, basically for 15 years of my life, I followed the economic journeys and the personal journeys of nine women who are very different from each other. They come from, you know, India is an extremely diverse country. These are women who come from different faiths, different castes, uh, mm-hmm. different places in the country. And yet the only thing that seemed to unite all of us, and I'm one of the people, I I sort of talk about my own economic and personal journey over the past 15 years. The thing that seems to unite us in conversation uh, is not the standard boring social science questionnaire and going and interviewing people, but is talking about Shah And I think that was actually how the book started, just like what you was describing about your family. Because I remember I was in a slum in Ahmedabad in Gujarat. And this is in 2006, Uh, this is the origin story of the book, I went in with a very standard questionnaire, you know, that all economists and survey questionnaires, which had questions about women's hours of work, wages, and these were all women who were unionizing and mobilizing and fighting for better labor rights for themselves, they were all members of SEVA, the women I was interviewing and they just looked hideously bored, Ragini, when I was going through the standard questionnaire with them. <laughs> and uh, and uh, they said, could we please talk about something else? And they told me that, you know, they used to call me Survey Wali Didi, which is, you know, the sister who comes and does surveys. <laughs> I was such a cliche. Uh, and they said that they'd seen women like me with their questionnaires so many times and nothing really seemed to improve. So they said, could we talk about something more fun? And, you know, in social science, you're taught to use icebreakers, right? So I started mm-hmm. asking all these women about who their favorite actor was. And suddenly the energy of the conversation, Ragani, just completely opened up. Everybody mm-hmm. wanted to talk about him. And in talking about him, when I heard these conversations later, because I'm a diligent note taker, and I, when I was looking at the notes that I made, I realized they weren't actually talking about him. They were talking about how hard it was to, for them to find purchasing power, to be able to just go and buy a ticket or buy a mobile phone or just go, you know, buy a audio CD. I mean, this is 2006, so this is still the world of CDs before streaming. And they were actually talking about their economic lives Uh, and they were talking about masculinity. They were talking about how different he is from men, much like what you're describing about the conversations in your family. Mm -hmm. And I just found that fascinating. And, you know, there was this one moment in that conversation where this young girl said to me, she said, you know, you researchers, you come, you always ask me about welfare schemes and my deprivations and my poverty, but none of you have ever asked me who my favorite actor is. And she was just so surprised and I decided to lean into that. So I, you know, I I think to me, the book could only happen precisely because of what you said, which is, you know, some of these icons can really stir conversation right because they're not people they're prisms they become concepts Mm -hmm. Um, and it's very interesting then to use that to get people to talk about how they understand masculinity how they see the Mm -hmm. economy how they see the market what is feminism for them right Mm -hmm. and I'm just very grateful to Mr. Khan because he allowed for those conversations to emerge in a very organic way without me forcing a very typical social science lens onto it so I think you make a very important point even in the genesis of the book about how he unites people in conversation.
1: I think we all agree that storytelling and sometimes story sharing is incredibly powerful. I think it's a very underutilized tool in general. But just circling back to Shara you mentioned or you call him a feminine but not a feminist icon based on what you were discussing before. And we would like to play a short game with you if that's okay. Yeah, (laughs) go ahead. (laughs) So, we're going to list out just a short list of pop culture icons. Bear in mind that in the podcast, our team, I think there's like a seven to eight year gap between us. So, there's a variation (laughs) of people (laughs) on this list. (laughs) And um, well noted, (laughs) well noted. (laughs) So, Ragni and I might not even be the best like verse people, <laughs> some of these people, but despite it all, would you be willing to answer if they are a feminist or a feminine icon in your opinion?
2: Yeah. So, so I, I do want to preface this with, you know, a couple of things. One is, okay. so in the book, what I say is that he's a female icon and not a feminist icon. And I think what I meant, at least in the book by that is, you know, there are certain markers of a progressive discourse, right, around women's agency, bodies, honoring women, which I think is part of, especially I think on social media, the kind of tick box version of what a feminist life could look like, right? Uh, And if you look at his films, I mean, he's played men who've stalked women and, you know, done fairly harmful things to women. Uh, So it's hard to, you know, use that filmography to say it's terribly progressive, and it aligns with sort of feminist goals and views, right. But he's a female icon. And what I mean by that is that women love him. Uh, Those who identify as female, those who identify as women love him. And they love him for different reasons. Some of them even love him for those terrible movies that he's done, where he's like, you know, actively harming women, which is, you know, complex Mm -hmm. and So to me, I think when I say someone is a female icon, I think I just largely mean precisely what Ragini was saying earlier, Monica, and what you were saying about storytelling is, you know, an icon who allows women to tell their stories, right? Uh, Or allows anyone actually to tell their stories. I, I, I think to me, that's a very interesting role and function that he plays. And then, you know, I'm honestly, I get very uncomfortable when anyone asks me to sort of label them as feminist mm-hmm. or not, because I don't believe feminism is a label. And I think all of us will agree with that. I, feminism is a way of life. It's it's a lived practice. Uh, It's a way you're conscious of power relations and choices and, and how you show up in the world. Mm-hmm. Honestly, uh, I don't think feminism is, you know, you do X, Y and Z and then there's a kind of formula and then you become feminist. I think, sadly, that's a kind of social media discourse. Mm -hmm. I feel around feminism which I don't subscribe to so I'm happy to play the game because basically what I will say to you is that in all likelihood all your all the icons you're going to list are probably female icons because they probably unite a lot of women in conversation uh good or bad but as for feminist, I mean I think that's you know that's sort of very contextual right so so I think happy to play the game but I just wanted to add that caveat which is I think that's really what I meant in the book when I said someone is female or feminist right uh in his icon so i think that's the i mean i, I think it's a subtle point but it's i think it's an important one
1: no absolutely I think, I think it's super important and you'll see i think the last icon on the list brought up that very specific debate in our run through
2: no if i know the icon i mean you know you were joking about how there's like a seven or eight year gap in your, your team i mean i'm 40 so i have a feeling in all you. i won't know anyone <laughs> On the list. No, uh, yeah. But but let's let's go ahead and give it a try and I'll 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 pretend to know them even if I don't or I'll ask you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it sounds good. Okay, we're kicking off with I think a very iconic icon, which is Beyoncé.
2: Ah. I mean, who doesn't love her, and she's like feminist, <laughs> fe- female, all of it. Mm-hmm. I think she can she can essentially have any label I like any claim and concept can be her. She's such a such a remarkable woman. I actually went I was at a concert of hers in London recently, and I was just blown away by the diversity of people there who love her so yeah I mean female feminists all powerful and just just amazing yeah
0: oh my god I went for a concert in London as well Shrayana.
2: yeah we were probably at the same concert Ragini. I mean it's just it's amazing how I noticed even you know in her dancers in the mm, crew yeah. there was such an attention paid to diversity making sure different people felt represented and I think this goes back Monica to the point that you started the podcast with this time about what diversity authentically means and mm-hmm. I really felt that you know her tour at least has just really it always honors that and I think that's really remarkable and so if we think of feminism right as like a set of conscious practices not a label yeah. clearly there is someone you mm-hmm. know her and her team who think about these things consciously so yeah definitely feminist and what a wonderful female icon she is
1: I think who there was is the no fourth icon yeah,
2: I wanna who the, I, I want to jump to the fourth icon, the complicated <laughs> one.
1: <laughs> I think there's a couple more. I think by three I lose the thread personally.
2: <laughs> uh, I then, yeah, I'm gonna to struggle to stay on, but let's let's let let's go. Let's go. Yeah, who's who's next?
1: Okay. Next on the list is Michelle Obama.
2: Oh, come on. I mean, this is you're, This is like the same. I mean, you know, I, I can't, i I read her books. I've devoured every mm-hmm. lecture that one can find. And again, the same thing, right? Someone who's so conscious of the power relations that play out, having, you know, having been a very powerful woman herself. So yeah, absolutely feminist and female. I don't, there's no brainer, both, everything. <laughs> She's just like Beyonce, political Beyonce. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I like that. No, but this is why we had to then omit Oprah because we thought then it might be too redundant. So here's where it starts getting messy. <laughs> all right, let's go. So BTS. Oh, so, you know, to me, to be
2: honest, I know, okay, that this is where I will reveal my age and my lack of, you know, <laughs> no. the, what I, I, I don't really follow them. I know it's, it's such a huge trend and all, and, and power to them. Um, I, I was in Seoul recently. I'm not a big follower of K-pop. I have to admit. So I'll be a bit, I I don't think I can answer that. But what I can say is that I've seen how young women react to them. And it makes me very happy to see young women be so joyous in in very different places. Like I've actually met BTS fans in fairly low income neighborhoods Mm -hmm. in Delhi. And recently, you know, there was a book of theirs, I think that came out and I noticed, I mean, it was sold out in bookstores within I think a matter of a few days um, in India in different bookstores and I think uh, it's nice I mean to me I, I feel like that gives me a sense that uh, you know clearly female and I, I, I'm not I don't know enough to comment on feminist or not so I'm going to sort of be the fifth on that one <laughs> uh, and maybe who, anyone who knows um, I think their icon and their music better can comment but it won't be me. <laughs> But I'm happy that they make women and so many other people so happy. I think it is actually quite remarkable. So that, I think, is is something really worth
1: celebrating. Yeah, I think we started off with Undisputed Icons. And now we're going into the boy band territory of icons. So the oh, next gosh. one, right? <laughs> the next one is Harry Styles. Let me preface oh, this dear. and tell you my age that I knew him as part of One Direction.
2: Okay. So, and I don't even know what different. One Direction is, which tells you something <laughs> terrible about me and how clueless uh myopic, my uh, interests in pop culture. are. Uh, I do know of him, um, uh, largely actually, because... I, I followed, there was this whole fiasco, I think, involving his ex-partner or something, who I think is an amazing, like she made this amazing movie, Olivia Wilde, if I'm not mistaken, and I I really admire Mm -hmm. some of her work. And that's actually how I know him. Uh, I follow the women more than I follow the men, I have to be very honest, in in pop culture. I believe he has the most successful concert series in the history of, I think, concerts in the West, if I'm not, I I think I read that somewhere, Uh, which gives me a sense that he obviously makes lots of people, again, you know, going back to that whole BTS boy band thing, very happy. Uh, I hear and I read some things about how he subverts sort of expectations around... You know what the masculine should be so great power Mm -hmm. to that again I'm going to plead the fifth and saying I don't know enough about his music Mm -hmm. or his work to comment but definitely I mean I think a wonderful icon to be celebrated right if you're making people happy um I don't think I can say very much more than that, which would be intelligent. I have to say, I don't know that much about pop culture beyond Shah Rukh and beyond, I think, a few icons that I have followed. But I will say one thing about boy bands in general. Though I mean, it's interesting, right, because uh, Shah Rukh became the icon that he did actually around the time. You know, boy zone and take that. I mean, now I'm revealing my age. This was, you know, at the the ascendancy of sort of that phase of the boy band culture, right? Which sort of has now come back full circle with BTS and many of the, I think, bands and Mm -hmm. artists that you're talking about. But I do think it's interesting. The one thing about that boy band culture, which was interesting was, you know, there was a kind of softness in the music and the way men appeared. This interest in talking about feelings and not being stoic. And now, you know, we're living in an age of strong men, right? In our politics, if you look at mm-hmm. it, just the men who are populating decision-making systems in the world. And I think somewhere that kind of, alternative form of masculinity to me is very welcome so if it's you know Harry Styles if it's BTS whatever it is if you're mirroring different ways for men to be men that there are different Mm -hmm. ways to do this I think that's that's a really powerful thing given how oppressively constricted I think sort of current modes of masculinity have become right mm-hmm. uh, which we sell and pedal to our young boys um so I think you know it's wonderful I think if, if if that's the function that many of these boy bands can also play then you know great power to them and I'm sure there'll be some bad but you take the good with the bad and I think that's mm-hmm. as much as I can say about Harry Styles or BTS having literally not knowing their music <laughs> and not knowing very much about their icon <laughs>
1: I will say on your last statement, it's true. It also ties in with what Ragni was talking about, having a a universal touch point. And Mm -hmm. I think maybe not specifically One Direction or BTS or any other individual boy band, but boy bands as a general, like you just mentioned, are also a touch point for every generation. If you think about it, there seems to be a big wave of them every 10, 15 years, Mm -hmm. cycles in and out which also indicates how our society we evolve but the underlying currents are almost the same even yes. though you know we change hopefully <laughs> for the better
2: yeah 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 no i i think i think monica that's that, that's a really important point because you know it's interesting right like now when you look at if you look at all those old movies with the Beatles, you know, when everyone's chasing Mm -hmm. after them and sort of the mania around their music. Um, And, you know, that's the Beatles remain, I think pretty much, I think they're almost everyone's favorite band. I mean, think there's something, much like if there's something wrong with you, if you don't like Shah Rukh Khan, there's something very wrong with you if you don't love the Beatles. (laughs) And, you know, in fact, uh, I interviewed uh, Nasreen Munni Kabir, who is a, a documentary filmmaker, and she made this wonderful documentary on Shah Rukh and i interviewed her for the book and she, you know the the interview is in the book and she actually said this we were talking about how you know Shah Rukh may go through phases where his movies don't quite work um you know the box office may not be responding and yet, you know, if you go stand outside his house in Bombay, you'll always see people lining up. People just love him. And, you know, one of the points she made, she actually linked the Beatles to Shah Rukh And she said, you know, the Beatles will always be the Beatles and Shah Rukh will always be Shah Rukh. You know, these men and these bands and these icons have kind of surpassed the market metrics, right? Uh, They are loved beyond just their monetary value. I mean, it's a kind of different capital that they've created for themselves. Mm -hmm. And I suspect this is true for many icons. And I think to me, all of this, I mean, you know, be it the joy that people find in, I don't know, Beethoven or watching succession or Shah Rukh Khan or whatever it is to me it just speaks to everyone looking for an imaginative possibility out of this very oppressive market culture of our interpersonal relationships right and and this is something I get into towards the end of the book I, I describe it in the book I call it Laveria. Uh, which is actually a very famous shark song from the 1990s. But it's a disease and the disease is to constantly believe. I mean, people like Eric Fromm were talking about this way back when, and it still holds, which is this idea and belief that we should approach each other in our interpersonal lives through the perspective of market logics, right? What is in it for me? We're constantly playing this utility maximizing game. And to be honest, Constantly transacting with people is really exhausting. And I think everyone is tired and it, there's a kind of exhaustion with that kind of transaction and that hustle culture of love, of acceptance, right? Of feeling like you need to do X for me to love you in a, in Y way, right? This constant <laughs> trading and bartering. And I think part of the role that a lot of culture plays in our society is one, to actually show us a mirror to that, to actually tell us that we are subscribing to these market cultures where we don't want to be actually market agents. You know, I don't think our personal lives are for utility maximization, that to find meaning, there's something, there's something different going on there. And the other is an exit out. So, so many of the women I follow are so exhausted with this, this hustle culture where their families tell them, if you maintain a waist size of X, you will be loved in many ways. If you give up your job or if you behave in a certain way, then we will love you in different, different ways. This concentrating, they're so exhausted to them. Shah Rukh is sort of the exit out. Um, you know, as relief, as reprieve, as a moment that they can cry to themselves because they're so lonely and exhausted with this hustle culture or a moment of sheer unadulterated joy. Right. For the senses, mm-hmm. it's a kind of exit out. And I think that is the role that all these cultural artifacts play, I think, especially as our societies become more and more marketized in our interpersonal domains and, you know, especially in a world of apps where we treat each other as, you know, consumer goods Uh, not people with feelings where like finding love I say this in the book is like trying to buy a pair of shoes but finding love is not like trying to buy a pair of shoes it's very different (laughs) but sadly we've all you know signed up to this idea of finding Mm -hmm. love as if it's some kind of consumption commodity Mm -hmm. and I think in that world be it BTS be it anyone I think part of it is just relief right and it's release from the sort of uh, really dull imaginative possibilities of this kind of market logic to open up your world and your senses to something else and something far more meaningful and potent and joyous and delightful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that really, to me, what all of these artifacts play. And that's actually why I think we should be taking fandom a lot more seriously um, mm-hmm. as an area for study, not because they, that tells us something about the icon. To be honest, I'm not interested in what bts i fandom tells me about bts i'm interested in what bts fandom Mm -hmm. tells me about a young boy or young girl who loves them what is she or he trying to escape from right what are they trying to escape from when they turn to this music what are the imaginative possibilities that open up for them and that's I tried my best with the Shah Rukh book to try and answer that question, because, you know, literally on the second page, I say this book is not about Shah Rukh Khan. This book is about what he allows, the stories he allows women to tell about themselves in India. And that's my interest. And I think that's a really interesting way to think about fandom. And I hope
1: there'll be more work like that in the future. No, absolutely. I'm very excited now to list out. Sorry, this is the last one, the controversial one. Oh, gosh. Arguably, I think one of the biggest capitalist icons. So based on everything you've just mentioned, I almost think she is a perfect conclusion, which is Barbie. Oh, (laughs) gosh.
2: (laughs) <laughs> um I think I can I I'm going to take I'm going to be cheeky and say I've had enough of Barbie <laughs> so I'm, I'm done I'm all for Ken especially especially the way Ryan Gosling plays Ken because it looks hilarious um and I will leave it at that <laughs>
1: <laughs> an even more iconic conclusion than I could have written up
0: <laughs> it's fantastic
1: <laughs> <laughs> we've had
0: enough. I think that's, that's <laughs> key. Brilliant. Honestly, when I was like listening to the conversation, I was so excited for Barbie coming up because I was like, oh my God, what is she going to say? She said so much about everything else. And yes, this is beyond what I could have even imagined that's amazing but just... yeah
2: no no I I think it's 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 really I'm to be honest I'm really getting I'm, I'm going to watch both movies I think everyone is <laughs> and I, I I honestly the only thing I will say about this is I find it so funny when I'm fairly sure it's like a marketing stunt this thing about playing up two films because you know it's the same market culture again right like why is everything a zero-sum game Uh, I just, I think Killian Murphy had a wonderful interview, which I saw where he said that he can't wait to watch Barbie. Mm -hmm. And he says, it's great, you know, you have these two great films. And I don't know why, I think it was also Marlon Brando, he had this beautiful interview at a time. And he said, the great American sickness is to constantly come up with this thing of, there is the best, there is someone who wins. Um, And I think he was saying this in response to people calling him the greatest actor ever. And you know, in India, it's really funny, like my next book is on middle aged men, and I've been interviewing them. And one of the things that's really funny is, they're really into this, you know, this, like, this person is the best writer, this person is the best thinker. you know, we all know we're all such complex, different human beings, what is best is very different to each one of us. Why mm-hmm. should we impose this sort of Olympics of status and bestness on anyone? And I don't, I'm really not interested in the zero sum game view on culture. So that's the one thing I will say about Barbie, <laughs> which is why I said I've had enough because I'm just tired of this. I'm just going to watch both movies and thoroughly enjoy them for different yeah. reasons. And yeah, I love Ryan Gosling. I think he's such a talented actor, and I hear mm-hmm. amazing things about the way he's played again. You know, the masculine idioms of Ken.
0: Yeah. So I'm excited to see it. Yeah. No, I think. Yeah. I. I mean, I agree a hundred percent about the exceptionality factor. I guess. Um. I mean, especially in India, I don't know how. I don't know how it ex- coexists with such a large population because surely not everybody can be the best. But maybe that's what makes you want it even more to kind of stand out amongst such a large population but just on the topic of icons so that we can wrap this bit up um do you have any projections on future feminist icons or female icons yeah I
2: think Priyanka Chopra is going to rule the world (laughs) <laughs> this is my prediction despite I know she there's a there, I know that there are many people who think that there are several problematic things about her or whatever I I, I can't I mean I'm not going to comment on all those I was in uh, Seoul and I was in Dhaka and I live in Delhi and I spend a lot of time in Bangkok as well And I have friends who are in Brazil and each one of us and through these different experiences, we've interacted with young girls and young boys, but largely young girls Mm -hmm. who come from, you know, sort of emerging middle class backgrounds in all of these countries. And they all love her. We've met you know, Priyanka fangirls across these different places. They And I think it's interesting, right? So I always think of her. So I, I think the future is female in terms of these icons. I mean, I think Beyonce sort of paves the path for what I think the future of female celebrity could potentially look like the power of that oh. you know the best films that are being written directed they're all by women so I think the future is I do think you're going to see a far more feminized future when it comes to these conversations of mm. culture and I think a lot of this I think we will retire this world of like the great man I think that to mm. me the future is the great man is going to be retired because I think we've reached a stage, I certainly feel this way. We can't reform the great man because he's just too in love with his greatness and he will not allow, you know, this thing about the zero-sum game, he will not allow for a different kind of conversation to emerge. Uh, so I think we can't reform the great man, we can just retire him and I think he will be retired. I, I think it's, it's it's you know, and I, I see this even in the way, for example, something as small as, look at the non-fiction Indian market. I mean, my book sort of really doesn't sit into or frame very well into what is typically considered a non-fiction book in India. Mm. And, you know, mashallah, the book has, you know, done well and it's found with its readers. And the readers are very different from the typical tech bro, mm. you know, non-fiction bro who reads uh, <laughs> non-fiction India. There's a very typical type. It's largely, you know, straight men who are aspiring exam applicants or want to mm. sound smart at business meetings and parties and there's a way in which that that market is sort of codified and i see that you know so things are changing and i think you know even from my own small very insignificant personal experience to what i see with you know priyanka chopra's name being mentioned in different places to a very deep diversity in the kinds of icons and culture that people are sort of drawing upon right to make make sense of the world and to yeah. give themselves joy uh, I just feel that the great man will end. So yeah, I think Priyanka Chopra is going to rule the world and the great man is going to be retired in our culture, in the future of celebrity, which is also why I actually feel Shah Rukh might be the last of, you know, the legion of, uh, of that kind of icon. I mean, we,
0: we we can only hope that the great man ends <laughs> because... No, I, think... I don't think we have
2: to hope. I think we have to do it, Ragini. I really, yeah. I, I don't think this is something... I think we have to do it in... Sadly, we live in this world where a lot of our market choices are very important. So we have to put our money mm-hmm. and what we consume to mm-hmm. follow that path. So, for example, I know it's going to sound very strange, but I don't buy books from sort of upper caste posh Ben, who have forever yeah. been writing books uh, yeah. about the history of India and about India. I want to spend money supporting other people's writing. Yeah. I'm very conscious of those kinds of choices. I think we can all make those choices in our everyday lives. I think all the women I followed every day by doing very simple things, you know, teaching boys to be a different way, telling them that it's okay to express your emotions and be vulnerable. I think we can all do yeah. things to retire this great man. I, I don't think we hope i think we all do it and i think it can be done and i i see these changes steadily around me there is a backlash for sure i faced it Uh, i've had men really misbehave with me at book events and be very strange but that's okay and you know you sort of have to deal with it but i think it is part of this journey of retiring this great man complex and the great man yeah and
0: i think uh, your book is definitely one step towards retiring that the the great man And just the, I guess, like uh, the concept of what is important enough to talk about in nonfiction, Um, because just speaking of your writing, I guess, which primarily focuses on the power of popular culture in not just influencing people's mind, but also to use it as a tool for efficient and responsive social impact. Some may argue, and like you've mentioned, you have had people misbehave with you, that this is an unorthodox take on academia with more orthodox methods like causal or experimental methods being prioritized at times so Mm. i guess as an economist what are your thoughts on this and then as your with your positionality as a woman and as an economist do you think that do you think that your positionality has actually helped you innovate new methodologies
2: so you know honestly 15 years ago somebody told me oh Shah Rukh Khan would be my research method in a book about women's economic and personal lives in post-liberalized India I'd say get out of here I mean <laughs> I, I I would not believe it I'd say that's just impossible but it happened and it happened I think partly also because I had the resources in the space you know I'm not a full-time writer I have a job elsewhere it allowed for that space to do long-term in-depth work right it sort of allowed the resources for that the space for that Mm -hmm. um and so to me I think one of the things I feel I mean you know there are different ways of writing and thinking about the economy there's of course the more traditional academic lens which by the way I'm a fan of I think it's very useful I mean if you see in the book the book uses economic theory particularly what we call intra-household bargaining theory I think those who study economics will be familiar with it which is How do we use a game theoretic lens to understand how power dynamics within homes start to change Mm -hmm. and how well-being starts to change and social norms start to change when women have an income, right? And they have an exit out potentially. It changes the dynamics of your relationships with your fathers, boyfriends, lovers, brothers, mothers, with yourself. And I think economic theory is very useful in framing those very abstract concept. So I, I'm i a big fan of economic theory, and not just, I mean, all kinds of theory, and I'm a fan of academic models and frameworks. I mean, I use them, they're very helpful. Mm-hmm. But I think what I'm, what I'm tired of is a kind of hubris in believing that then this is the only way to explore and experience and explain the world. I don't believe that. Mm-hmm. I think that Shah Rukh Khan can tell you about intra-household bargaining theory and I don't need to write a very stuffy technocratic book about women in the economy which is meant to impress a bunch of boys who go to Davos and the mm-hmm. World Economic Forum. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in having a more public conversation on women's economic participation. And that requires it to be more accessible. And that helps with Shah I mean, having him in the book as an anchor is making the book more accessible. And so to me, I don't think it's, you know, the book is blurred by some phenomenal economists. And, you know, there are people, you know, there's a Nobel Prize winner in there, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's a champion of experimental methods and I admire his work so deeply. Uh, and he's been such a source of encouragement to me uh through this entire journey of the book. And there are several others, um, feminist economists and so on. So I, I think it's not so much about, again, you know, it's not an either or game of, you know, the academic way of doing economics. And then the other way, I just think, you know, a thousand ways of understanding and writing about the economy can bloom. Um, And I think we can all operate without the hubris of believing that we ourselves can sort of, you know, exclusively speak on the economy. And and, and I think as long as you I've always loved mixed methods work. And and my hope has always been to sort of bring data with stories together to try and at least paint a more broader picture. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I was trying to do with the book. And I, I think it's a, it's a more powerful method uh, than just writing into a very traditional genre of you know the way journalists will simply report or an academic will simply write. I think we can yeah. we can be more personal in the way we write. We can take risks. I realized, I mean, I realized my book. I mean, the whole process of it was very risky, and I could afford to take a risk, but I wanted to. And I I think there will be other works like that. So to me, I. I you know, I couldn't have written this book had I not been trained in economics, um, in the data, in the theory, in the way the models work. I also couldn't have done this book had I not been a mad Shah Rukh Khan fan, right? And so I think, you know, these are two things that sit very separately, but you can bring them together. And I hope other people will bring, to me, honestly, it was a very selfish act, Ragini, because... I always felt these different parts of my life were not adequately integrated. And maybe the book was a way for me to integrate all of this. You know, what I was experiencing in my own personal life, the way I was seeing all these women's lives play out and, you know, the sort of everyday struggles that we were dealing with never seemed to be reflected in sort of the technicalities around women's economic participation in sort of, you know, traditional reports and academic books. And I really wanted them to be better integrated. I wanted them to talk to each other. I wanted them to get married. Mm-hmm. and I try to do that and I'm sure you'll see more work like that and there is more work like that I think there will be more work like that in the future particularly in South Asia I and mean, what I'm describing is actually very common in the West and even in East Asia you have this kind of writing I think in South Asia because you know because I also I fundamentally believe because of the caste system because of how unequal we are there's a certain cabal of people who sort of decided how we should write about the economy mm-hmm. and I think things are changing and uh, more powerful
0: to that change? No, I mean, just because I'm personally someone who I'm from a social science background and I'm just scared of numbers. And I think because I've, like you said, the way some of these books have been written it's also to almost kind of shame you into not reading it if you don't think you're going to get the full grasp of it. But with your book, yeah. it was so easy for me to pick up because I was like, okay, I'm sure economics might not be my thing, but there's Shah Rukh in there. I'll find a way to understand it. And I guess just something to keep me turning the pages because yeah, I think like, like you, like you very rightly said, the way some of these quote unquote serious books are written, it's almost like they are doing you a favor by writing this book for you to kind of become more informed or whatever. Whereas yeah, it's not. Yeah. Like,
2: yeah. Or you buy it and you never look at it and it just sits <laughs> in your library, which I know happens in many cases, but yeah, no, I, I hear you. And and here I, I do have to say, I think, I owe the biggest debt to my agent who is also, I call her my PhD sort of guide for this book. Her name is Shruti Devi and my editor, Shogad Das Gupta, because you know I'm not a trained writer, Ragini. I mean, I I no one trained me on how to write a book. I'm not a journalist. I write in the very traditional way World Bank reports are written, which is a very different kind of writing. And I think I was just doing diary notes in a very sort of fluid style. And initially, I remember the draft I sent to Shruti. It was a lot more academic. And she forced me, she said, just write. She said, just write confidently what you want to write. Don't sort of feel like you have to play to a gallery. Just write what you want to write. And I think that really helped me and and I also owe this tremendous debt to um Saugat because even before he was my editor there was an excerpt from the book that was published a section called the aristocrats and uh it was actually about my own personal experiences dating someone from India sort of 0.001 percent and uh, you know that that piece sort of you know as the kids say went viral and I'm very grateful because that gives you some confidence right that you can sort of clearly there's something in it in this way of writing so that was very helpful but for me I, I do have to thank the people around me because they really encouraged me to just sort of lean into a more what felt right to me as opposed to playing a certain role right to be seen a certain way I and I think the other thing I do have to say is I was very clear because I wrote the book also at a time of tremendous heartbreak which I'm, I'm very transparent about in the book I was dealing with like the shambles of a very bad relationship which went very wrong. I think there's something about heartbreak that also opens you up right, in the way Mm -hmm. you write. And I think what was also very helpful at that time was that I decided I wanted to write to that version of myself who was lonely and struggling being an independent single woman in a city in India. And my book is essentially a love letter to anyone like that. I mean, any woman who's trying to sort of assert her own independence in India, this is a love letter for her. This is a love letter for Shah Rukh Khan. And I think that really helped me because once I realized that I was writing for her and I was writing for Shah Rukh, that just made sure I wasn't writing for, you know, of an uncle in mm-hmm. the nonfiction space. I, I I was not interested in impressing that person. I just was interested in finding connection and companionship with that woman who would read it, and perhaps with Shah Rukh Khan. And that was it. And that really freed me, I think, from a lot of the academies. Mm-hmm. So that was very helpful. But it's, it, it's it's by practice. You keep doing it. And then I think you sort of yeah. find a rhythm and it works for you.
1: Triana, if I may, I think you achieved, and almost even in this interview, you embody, I would argue, the invisible women trope. So the Invisible Women book is based on how in medicine they only ever studied men. And so now there's a yeah. massive gap in the medical field. And so, you know, in a way, we need to study women's bodies to make sure that it doesn't happen to future generations. And I think from just listening to your and Ragni's interaction, I feel like this conversation, let alone your book, is doing that for so many women, regardless of age, because it could be career, it could be heartbreak, it could be uh, entrance exams, (laughs) which are very stressful and pop up every (laughs) five years, apparently. Yep. Um, So I just wanted to say thank you. No, thank you, Monica. And I love that book. It's, it's a
2: wonderful book. It's, it's, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the, it's, it's strange, because I think we are, I mean, we are a conservative society. So, you know, the one of my favorite writers, I mean, there's a lady called Manu Bhandari. She's a Hindi writer. And she, you know, she writes short stories, but they're very personal short stories. And you can tell by the way she would write them and her and there are a few other writers who I actually think I owe this great debt to because they sort of allowed me to feel so comforted by reading them. And I Mm -hmm. felt like, well, if I could just do that for one person, uh, I would be so thrilled. And I think that was the entire objective with the book. And I think Invisible Women, actually, you know, those kinds of books also can comfort you because the thing that I feel, unlike a Manu Bhandari sort of fictional short story, I think the thing that nonfiction can do and sometimes the language of data and social science can do... Is it can tell you that hey you're not feeling alone because it's some personal petty fault you're feeling alone because the structures of society want you to feel this way right they are Mm -hmm. not studying you they are not acknowledging your experience and I think that is what that book did that's also what the memoirs of people like Vivian Gornick do for me when you read you know what she writes and she writes memoirs Mm -hmm. about her life you realize that there is a kind of experience being in a certain body that is just not being acknowledged and i think non fiction does have a way of comforting you I, I i know people tend to turn to fiction for comfort but i've always actually found a lot of comfort in non fiction particularly women mm-hmm. writing non fiction because it it always used to tell me i'm not alone i mean there's you know there's there's solidarity in those numbers this is a large group of us and i wanted to do that for at least women of my generation and especially women in India who I know it's it's really hard to earn an income and hold on to Mm -hmm. it and still want to find a relationship that works for you it's it's Mm -hmm. it, it sounds really simple and banal but it's really tough and I think I just wanted to speak to that frustration and tell all these women that you know it's not you it's the structures of our society it's the way the economy is built it's built, our housing markets are built to make you fearful and alone and desperately looking for a decent man or a constant marriage offer. Uh, If our Mm -hmm. economy functioned differently, if we had a basic income and housing markets for example that worked for single women many women probably wouldn't need to get married uh, they would just you just opt out and i think i just wanted to give people a sense of how the economy was creating this kind of loneliness in our lives as well and i i felt i felt books like invisible women and so many others really sort of spoke to me in that way they made me feel less alone and i think it's in service of that agenda that I hope, I mean, I hope to continue writing more and thanks. Thanks for what you said. No,
1: not at all. And just thank you for reiterating it. It's true the conversation of that the housing market specifically is not made for single women, just based on multiple factors on your entry point in the market right after, you know, a degree at the same time as, as your male counterparts to what happens, you know, tax wise. After you get married, do you file separately or independently? Is that an option in the country that you are living in or that you're fiscally residing in? I swear women are like strategic planners by birth. (laughs) yeah
2: yeah 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 because you have to be right because if the options Mm. are limited then you're constantly scarcity produces that kind of instinct to plan and Mm. i think in countries like for example in india and i'm sure ragini will i mean i I right now live in like a lovely neighborhood but i can tell you i pay more rent to live in this neighborhood because it's considered a safer neighborhood uh than i would like to pay but that's just a tax that i have to endure right because Mm. i i live on my own and i want to be safe and I can do that. Many women can't. And I think, you know, even just the simple, you know, the ability to just safely access housing, right? Beyond Mm -hmm. just the costs of it. It it continues to be that. I actually do think so many marriages, I I keep joking with my married friends and they don't like it. I keep saying so many marriages would just fall apart if women just had houses of their own. I actually do believe that. (laughs) Um, And, it's, it's it's a dark secret, but it's a true. I, I think it's an authentic secret. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that's the equilibrium we're in right now. And I think we're fighting
1: it. Absolutely. I think there's many surveys coming out recently that say in different countries, I know in the West, at least, that I think single women above the age of 30 are the happiest from all their counterparts. Which include yeah. married, <laughs> engaged, <laughs> and it's astounding. And I mean, it also shows, I guess, how much either we how much more transparent we are with it, or how much things have changed. sure because we don't really have the data from fifty to hundred years ago. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Just very briefly, I know we touched on this when we we're talking about, if you will, the ID equivalent of tech bros, the Davos bros, um, <laughs> on the notion mm-hmm. of international development being a bit gatekeeping for the lack mm. of a better word. Yeah. And so I just wanted to quickly ask you, how can we all continue to change this gatekeeping narrative within the sector while still promoting the responsive and official social impact that is being achieved?
2: Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> this is actually something I, I think I, maybe in my 60s, I'll write a book about being at the World Bank. I'm not sure <laughs> if they'll allow me. I'll have to figure this out. I, I, I have a, I, I do have to say in large development organizations, I want to start with this preface, which is in large development organizations, which are giant bureaucracies. And you know, I work for the World Bank. It is a giant bureaucracy. I mean, it's your experience of, of the organization tends to be completely mediated by the people and the government clients that you are working with. And so I've had, you know, I've been really fortunate. I was brought into the organization by this wonderful woman who's a phenomenal economist. I learned so much from her, and I've had wonderful managers of you know different ethnicities backgrounds it's been it's been really for me it's just been a very enriching experience having said that, I've also had my share of frustrations where I've screamed at my managers for things that I felt were just not working right and and we've had always i think what's always helped me is I've had managers or people, at least in that small constellation, who we can have genuinely honest and zero bullshit conversations with, which I think is really important because I think the sad fact is that in many development institutions, I think the levels of the tolerance sometimes for a lot of BS is sometimes a bit high because we're used to sort of, you know, not getting to the point. And I think I've, at least in my, the people I report to, the people I work with, I've always had people who appreciate just being direct mm-hmm. and being, you know, something's not working. So I think the one thing I do have to say is reflecting on my own experiences that it requires patience, but it also requires some plain talking. And that's been very helpful. I think, to me, one of the things that I feel, I mean, and I think someone like me and many of us, right, working in these institutions, we're sort of navigating this, which is that these multilateral institutions in particular are really changing, right, in terms of their backgrounds, the relationships between countries who are financing them, their Mm -hmm. goals, agendas, the way they're architected. So for example, I mean, you know, during the COVID pandemic, I was leading one of our largest development policy loans in India for the World Bank on social protection. This was part of the emergency relief measures. And I think there was a time in the World Bank as well that, you know, people like me would not be leading these kinds of operations. It would be like men of a certain ethnicity and of a certain age, right? Like mm-hmm. things have really changed. I think what's really helpful is you need to find mentors and people who who can guide you. And I've really had, I think for me, I really want to single out uh, someone called Juneer Ahmed, who is currently, I think, the vice president of MIGA. And he was the country director for India. He's been at the World Bank for such a long time. He's such a wonderful, nurturing human being. And I know so many colleagues of mine have people like this in their life who, you know, anytime something is wrong, you can message them. They're very busy, these people, so they'll get back to you, but you can talk to them. And I've always had that. And I think it's it's really helped me. But it's challenging. And I think we are, because we're in this churn, right? Um, I think in different places, it plays out differently, be it, you know, whether you're in a civil society organization or you're in a multilateral institution or you're in, in in an impact fund. I think the churn of questioning power relations, right, between the people we are trying to serve and who is actually designing these programs and who is defining the imaginative framework and the cognitive framework that is Framing development. I think all of that is changing. And I I think we are all in that churn together. And I think anytime there's a lot of churn, it's useful, as I said, to have honesty, some spots of kindness, people who you can just go and moan to. And I definitely have people like that in my life. And I think that's very helpful. As for you know, broad trends in careers in development and where the sort of development discourse is going. I mean, that's sort of you know in, in multiple different directions, right? I mean, on one hand, And I see I think the way funding patterns are moving Um, I think the world of just sort of having academic knowledge which will then just immediately translate into you having a dialogue with government I think that world just doesn't exist and I think now it's it's operational knowledge and Mm day-to-day practice that is valued much more at least that's my experience with government clients in particular Um, and I think that sort of Prestige value of having you know fancy PhDs from fancy places. You know, in the book, I, I have a line about how some of us mask our insignificance with doctoral degrees from Harvard, and I mean it because I actually do think that um, that the the prestige of certain kinds of degrees and certain types of places, I think that is fading. Um, Mm -hmm. I think what really matters is whether you really substantively understand the architecture of the sector that you're working in. Um, Sometimes it's sort of very, you know, in-depth, you know, being in the weeds, knowledge. Uh, And I think what really seems to matter a lot is interpersonal skills. So these, you know, the the skill to be honest, uh, to be brutal, but in a kind way, sometimes Mm -hmm. uh, to manage teams. I think things like that are becoming much more important and local contextual knowledge Uh, I hope local contextual knowledge is also priced better and valued better Mm -hmm. in terms of wages and and the way we pay people in these jobs. Um, I'm I'm, I'm sort of looking forward to more reforms and changes in that. But I do see that that there's this big shift uh, happening. And I think I'm I'm really glad to see it. And I'm glad to be in some way part of that. You know, this is a huge social movement, right? Uh, and I think I'm really happy to be part of it and witnessing it as as we move forward.
0: You know, just I just wanted to jump in because Shaina, hearing you talk about work and your career is so inspiring for someone like me who's just starting out on their career journey. And I remember when we initially started brainstorming about this episode... One kind of concept that we all just resonated with so much because it's something that we've all felt was how you've described the concept of women, uh, men earning money and women earning love. And again, just as a group of very ambitious, dedicated women, this was something that hit us so hard. And um, yeah, I was just wondering, in your opinion, how do you think this idea plays into how women seek success and have you have you seen any shifts over the years have you seen this idea evolve
2: yeah so you know I I think a couple of things Uh, to me like love is the most important currency you know it's the currency of the self right I Mm -hmm. mean it's sort of it's beyond market logics like this thing that I was telling you right that when I say I love Shah Rukh Khan at some level he can't do anything for me. You know, we can't transact in any way. I'll go watch all his movies, but it's not like, you know, he's, I'm not asking him to do anything, right? And and I will love him. There's a kind of selflessness in that. And I think that is the beauty of love, like sort of a, it is the melting of the very purely self-interested, self-calculating, deeply, hideously capitalist self. And if you sort of take that version of love, I wish men would want to earn love as well, just as women. So when I say that, I don't actually mean it as sort of a value judgment. I think, I think what hasn't changed, and this is what really disappoints me, is that love and the act of people who love us the labor that they put into loving us the labor that is love itself caring for people following their needs it's not just you know domestic labor i mean you know emotional labor of tracking people's needs knowing what they need following up with them i just don't think as a society or as a market we value those skills at all and you see this by the way not just in families or in our personal lives you see this in the workplace right uh, there are people in our teams, and I, I can tell you this, this is, this is true for every team, be it the private sector, be it the development sector, there are people whose skills are actually the ability to sort of make people feel seen and heard. Yeah. And, that you know, their problems are acknowledged in teams. And without having people like that, teams will just fall apart. Mm. And yet, if you look at the way some of those people who kind of do that very invisible work of holding teams together, right, or make the call to the angry bureaucrat when the bureaucrat is angry that something's not working out and kind of soothes their concerns, we don't value that skill. We kind of just pass it off as like, oh, they're just like fluffy, untechnical people who are just like in sort of Mm. project management, right? Or for example, my mother's a social worker. So this is something that's very important to me. You look at the work of social workers. Every day they're in brutal situations dealing with people who have, you know, who are facing so much and their job is to sort of show up for them. Mm -hmm. Do we pay them what they deserve? I don't think so at all. I think, you know, and why is it that sort of, you know, academic economists should be getting paid more than a social worker in a particular program? I think there should be parity, right? And I think what really upsets me, honestly, about the entire paradigm right now, and this is not just development, this is everywhere, is that we genuinely don't value love. The labor of loving, we don't value it. We don't value it in a very technocratic sense in that women are not paid for their domestic labors and their care duties. And we don't value it as I think a society, because I think we take it for granted. And I I think what perhaps is changing is some women are saying to hell with it, or even men, actually, they're saying, if you don't value the labor of my loving you, I'm not interested in performing that labor anymore. And I will be on my own or I will love somewhere else. I think that is changing. But I, I, I feel like, to me, that's one very important part of it. Now, there's the other part, which is the more traditional, I think, way women show up trying to earn love in the world, which is that your economic independence, your other ambitions, you're almost socialized and programmed to believe all of that is secondary mm. to making others happy, right? And, and I used to see this when it came to the Shah Rukh book, because, you know, watching Shah Rukh Khan is sort of seen as this very selfish silly thing that all these women are doing because they're just sitting huddled together near a tv and there are many instances of this in the book Mm -hmm. or they're listening to a song on their radio or watching something on the phone it's sort of seen as very solitary it's seen as selfish it's sort of seen as you're not paying attention to the things that you should really be paying attention to such as you know the dishes or your house or you know different roles that you're supposed to play uh, and I realized so many of the women I spoke to, particularly elite women, had to give themselves permission to have fun. They, 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 and and it was a, there was a guilt that they kind of attached to it. But I th- I think that's shifting, that guilt surrounding loving, right? And loving yourself and trying to earn and nice. seek love for yourself in whatever way it could be. As I said, going to a classical music concert, it could be going for a run. It could be, Whatever you like. Right. I think that is shifting amongst, I think, certainly large cohorts of women who are much more educated, at least in India, than their mothers were. I think that they are saying we will honor what, you know, the way we can love ourselves. Uh, But having said that, I mean, you only need to look at our labor market indicators. I mean, seven out of 10 women in their 30s are full time unpaid caregivers. Hmm. They are full time occupied by the job of loving that is actually what they're doing because love is a job it requires effort and they're not being paid they're not being valued and sadly they have also been taught because of all these other issues about housing markets not working women not being able to live on their own. They've been told, well, the only way to find marriage is the ultimate sort of social insurance, right? Love is a social insurance mechanism. Mm -hmm. You better earn the love of your in-laws and your husband or else no one will take care of you, right? You better earn the love of your Kids and, you know, have kids because who will take you to the hospital when you are old? And I think, sadly, we still live in a world where people are approaching their personal lives with that arithmetic. Instead of saying things like, well, why can't we have jobs? where Maybe we support people in their older age to go to the hospital if they need help. Because honestly, even having kids or being married is not a guarantee that there will be someone to help you, right? We're yeah. just not thinking of architecting our lives like that. Yeah. So I think the conversation around love, I mean, I think the, the, the way it really shows up is, you know, our lack of imagination and sort of acknowledging love as very yeah. serious input into the economic and psychological well-being of our societies. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in that conversation. Uh, and, and I know it makes men, straight men, and particularly upper caste Indian men very uncomfortable because they enjoy so much love they have a monopoly over it and they're not going to give it up Mm -hmm. and uh, I I think it's going to be a long fight Uh, and I have a feeling you know I I find places like South Korea actually very interesting that way because you know there's this whole movement of women just exiting right that they're not even they're exiting the marriage market they're exiting sort of even male spaces Mm -hmm. and I can see why that's happening because of precisely this that you realize that there is such a monopoly that certain and powerful men have over love that's suddenly liberalizing it to value actually the labor of love. What incentive do these men have? And they're running our parliaments. They're making our labor laws. They're you know giving away awards for books. They're uh, yeah. giving grants for research. Why will they change these things? And so I think the change is going to just have to come when you rest control and you just create alternative spaces yeah. or you feminize decision making systems. And I think that will happen. It's it'll it'll take some time. And that's where I'd like to put my energy and hope in.
0: I was actually reading something. Very- very interesting yesterday about how young women essentially run the economy because they are fans and they invest in stuff they they invest in i mean movie stars singers we've talked about boy bands a little bit today And their, I mean, their love will translate into like buying a movie ticket or going for a concert. And just so I guess like I wanted to come back to Shah Rukh Khan a little bit and uh, how he, Hmm. he basically represents a symbol of success. And I know that I guess I know we've discussed Bordeaux a little bit today and the idea of cultural capital. And I know he talks about objectified cultural capital which basically refers to tangible assets tied to specific social classes and required for social mobility which includes clothing now i know you've written a little bit about Mm. dress code and how that is a social indicator for and amongst women i just i was wondering if you wanted to share a little bit about how this notion has influenced your idea and even your pursuit of success
2: that's that's very loaded um I, i think so a couple of things right so, okay, let's start. I actually want to start with Shahruf for a second because I do think he sort of really symbolizes a lot of people's notion of what success should look like. You know, it's funny. I interviewed a whole bunch of people for 10 years. I used to stand outside his house uh, for his birthday celebration and his fans always stand up outside and it's like giant, giant groups of thousands and thousands of people. And I asked all these people, so many of them, why are you here? You I mean, it's a house. And they said, well, you know, for us, he made it and that house is sort of a conquest of middle class aspirations and there's a kind of very material aspect to that kind of success right yeah and for many women who could not even imagine showing up outside his house the fact that they could buy a ticket of their own and flex their economic muscle was actually success and you know there's a woman in the book who's a government accountant and she yeah. says to me I think it's just a beautiful line she says you know I worked very hard to reach Shah Ruk. and in Hindi it is tak Main bahut ki hai. and what she's saying is that her easy access to him you know she ends up I followed these women for 15 years and when I met her she was sort of struggling and by the end of 15 years she's a single woman who supports her parents has a tv of her own she doesn't need anybody's you know permission in India we have massive permission culture issues women have to seek permission to go out to like the doctor anywhere Uh, there's data in the book about this and recent data from Pew surveys as well and I think in a way for her the fact that she can access Sharif without anyone's permission is the greatest achievement it is success for her and I think what I want to use that to say is that you know success can be sort of you know it's mediated in very different ways and what can seem very banal to people because I can tell you for example for a lot of people standing outside Mandat or being able to watch Shah Rukh Khan is not success they laugh right. at it they won't understand it and I know there are people you know even when the book was coming out people just couldn't get the fact that well what is so revolutionary about all these women just Earning their own money and then des- deciding to use them to stand outside mannat or watch something they want to. But as you see in the book, it is actually a revolution of their own homes. They're changing norms, they're changing their own minds. They're changing so much. They're changing the fabric of their immediate, intimate lives. And I think it all will compound to some very big shifts. You know, the kinds of things we've been talking about today. And so to me, I think in mean, I mean, my pursuit of success, I, I I think it's been largely that, which is that. I feel to me, it's important to sort of respect other people's notions of well-being, and I I, I think the book has really taught me. The research process in the book has taught me tremendous humility right to think about how different people attach this idea of cultural capital and these assets in different ways it looks very different for different people um and you know i know women now i mean i used to make fun of people who sort of walk around with their designer bags but i know women who work really hard to just go to bangkok and buy a knockoff prada bag and they're so proud of it because it's sort of one of the first things they earn right with their income is like their first disposable income purchase And I've learned to sort of, you know, calm my judgmental voice, my inner judgy voice and respect that different people will then attach value and significance in different ways. And I think to me, that is actually the kind of success that at least I think I'd like to pursue, which is relaxing that judgment more and more as I age further towards my 50s. Um, And respect that other people will have very different notions of objective well-being and subjective well-being and I think a lot of a well lived life is just being able to navigate that with some humility and kindness.
1: No, I Trayana, I I think it always takes me a couple of minutes to react to what you're saying because it's almost like my own personal therapist, mm-hmm. <laughs> validating a lot of things and at the same time making me question certain things. And I think another great set of quotes that you of yours is the hard labor of beauty as well as the act of perfection. I think many women might assimilate to this, not only for the exterior, as Ragni mentioned with your study on, you know, the dress codes, but also interiorly how women may be very hard on themselves. And also because society may expect this or does expect this of you, you know, to be maybe academically brilliant or, you know, what, what is a woman at work, right? How are you seen? How are you heard? How do you actually make an impact there's a lot of literature now coming out on the economics of thinness and the price of the price of being overweight as well. A lot of things yeah. that impact women yep. specifically yep. in the workplace. Yep. And I wanted to know yep. how these two notions of the hard labor of beauty and the act of perfection, how do they tie into either hindering or facilitating the end of the great man? Yeah.
2: So, you know, Monica, one of the people I was so privileged to know when she's one of the women I followed in the book. We call her Gore and that's her pseudonym. She was a she's a runaway from a smaller town in Rajasthan, it's a state in India. Her parents wanted her to have an arranged marriage. And she said she 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 indulged the idea, but then she noticed that her future husband was a very fairly aggressive man and that frightened her quite a bit and she ran away and so one of the first jobs she started to do when she ran away was she used to be a model and in India it's very common for young women to take up these part-time jobs where they sort of model with cars at automobile expos and she used to earn an income through that and then she ended up becoming an in-flight attendant whereas you can imagine beauty is a very important part of sort of the Mm skill set right that is sort of not said but very clearly known is 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 uh is a criteria that matters and to her i really started to rethink beauty and this sort of beauty of what i you know, the beauty olympics through her because for her beauty was a very important aspect of a woman just acknowledging herself and, and you know this goes back to what i was saying earlier that this was a very important part of her subjective and objective idea of well-being and she would score me all the time about the way I was dressing and my you know, skincare routines and God knows what. Because to her, it felt like you know I needed to take better care of myself and taking care of yourself was sort of linked to beauty. I mean, I'm not a big subscriber completely to that. I think there are limits of energy that I can expend on things like that. But I see it. And so I think the first thing I do have to say about the way this facilitates and hinders women at the workplace is that I think often it doesn't matter if you conform and I have an essay which is sort of the beginnings of my next book it's it's available publicly for anyone who wants to read it it's called the Tilney of the Indian Uncle and one of the things I actually write in this is that it, at the workplace it doesn't matter if you conform to the most conformist idea of sexiness or if you don't. Because there will still be ways in which the sort of standard bro code at the workplace try and subvert you. So either you will be too sexy. So the best example is, well, you're getting ahead because you're too sexy or you're getting ahead because you know you're sort of currying favor and you're not like particularly attractive or something right like there's always these ways right Mm -hmm. it'll never be enough if you conform and I think the, the the way this is hindering women is we just end up spending so much energy and time judging each other instead of sort of finding solidarity on wages right on how much are you being paid and how much are men being paid in the office As opposed to sort of constantly treating each other as competition whereas actually we're probably allies irrespective of where we end up in this perfection and beauty spectrum and how much labor we're putting in on beauty um and knowing also fully well the notions of beauty just constantly keep changing right there's just what is considered beautiful seven years ago is no longer considered beautiful and it's just cyclical and it's it's a market-produced mirage and i think instead of wasting our energies on judging each other because judging each other and, t- and constantly appraising each other right from that very evaluative lens is so exhausting I think I'd much rather encourage all of us to sort of move past that and try and find spaces of allyship. Um, you know, one of the things that happened to me, and i read about this in the book, is that I was dating this man, and this is that chapter of the aristocrats. Uh, he was sort of, you know, 0.001% of India, extremely wealthy, spent all his time with all these very wealthy men who had wives, who just had all the time, sources in the world, to just Beauty was their job because they were so afraid that their husbands would leave them or would be bored of them and then that mm. they would lose capital because of that, because marriage was such an important part of their capital because they didn't, they, these women were never taught to sort of create a professional identity or an identity outside of that, right? Right. And so if being beautiful and sort of, you know, is the core currency of yourself and and is a core currency in your marriage and in your relationships, it's very frightening to start to age and things go away. And I, I met all these women when they were in the cusp of sort of their mid 30s. And I remember initially, we just hated each other because they thought I was just some upstart who constantly was showing off her degrees and her job. And I was so assaulted by how beautiful and perfect these women were. (laughs) And we wasted so much time, I think, just sort of appraising each other and not being kind to each other that actually there was a brief moment where we actually started speaking and I realized they had these horrific stories about abuse within their marriages and loneliness within their marriages. And I realized actually through that experience that we have so much more in common than I would have ever thought. Uh, One of the women I follow in the book, I call her the Rajput philosopher. I saw her at a party. She's just this perfect princess. She's actually, you know, just the most perfect creature by like the market logics of beauty. And I dismissed her completely. But then she told me that she was a Shahrukh fan and she really wanted to talk to me. And I went and met her later. And I realized there was so much violence in her marriage that her beautiful saris and her perfect jewelry were covering up. And I think I've learned from that that I don't want to waste my time in competing. And it's just so... It's a time suck and an energy suck. I'd rather spend my energies and trying to understand, engage, or try and find allyship. And I think that's the way we can stop hindering each other because the the bro code and the tyranny of the uncle will hinder you irrespective of how much labor of beauty you put in, it doesn't matter. Uh, that will always be, you know, you will never be enough. Uh, for that code, uh, one way or the other. And so I think I'm not interested in sort of that like, approval. I'm much more interested in trying to see if we can find allyship and not appraise each other constantly. I think that's that's really a waste of energy.
1: No, thank you so much. I think that you did everything you mentioned prior, which is a blunt answer with a bit of kindness and a lot of guidance for us all. <laughs> so thank you so much. Our final question of this formal interview section is going to give Shah Khan a break, (laughs) but it's more about your upcoming research. So our final question ties into the recently uploaded News 18 Shosha interview you did, anchored by Shrija Bhattacharya. Here you mentioned that the next topic you'd like to explore is how Indians have fun, their leisure activities, habits, and how that in turn impacts the economic and social sphere recognizing that you might not not want to reveal much of what you've discovered. Um, we just wanted to ask you if you've seen any interesting trends, variations pop up with relations to leisure's And if there's any generational trends or gender trends that you've spotted so far.
2: Thanks, Monica. So I I should should add that the the, the book I hope to write, uh, the, the Shah Rukh book took me 15 years to write because it's based on longitudinal work. So I used to follow the same people over a long period of time. I want to use a similar method for the book I'm calling The Economics of Fun. And the idea is I'm, I'm very curious to understand how people spend their leisure time. What is fun in different villages or different small towns in India? And I want to see and track the evolution of it over a period of a decade. Uh, so it'll take me, it's going to be a long time before that book comes out. And I have, <laughs> it's very early days. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I It'll be out by the time I'm in my 50s, um, hopefully. And uh, I mean, a couple of things I do know is, what I did find, which is really lovely is that people are much more interested in talking about the things that give them pleasure than just you know the traditional social science you know tell me your income and how much rice and sugar you can have and i think that's been really wonderful actually to see because i learned this during charo process the the process of this book but i think it's really now something that i've taken on as a method and sort of i'm broadening it beyond him um because different people have different remember i was talking about this exit out Mm -hmm. of this very marketized culture and I'm very curious about, well, if not Shar, what else? And, you know, how are people accessing their exits? How are they organizing it? Do they have the money to do so? How does that change? Does the economy change? I think, I think we don't, you know, when economists study well-being, we don't do enough on leisure. I think we should be studying how people are actually spending their free time. Are they actually able to rest and rejuvenate themselves? And how do they do so and i'm very curious about that for different people across the country and so we'll see it'll be a long process uh but it's in the it's in the making and i just found my sites and some people and some places and i'll sort of keep repeatedly visiting them and um we'll see where we go but the one thing i have learned is i think it's, it's it's interesting to use pleasure and fun as a research methodology than the more standard traditional approaches. So that's one. The book that I'm immediately writing, which is which is about the tyranny of the Indian uncle, which I think will be out, hopefully soon now we'll see, is much more about decision-making systems in India and how they're just run by a cabal of a very small group of men. And what that's doing, I think, to the self-esteem of so many people, men and women uh, at the workplace. Um, And uh, yeah, there's a primer of that that already came out at the end of last year. It's on Mint Lounge. It's available for anyone to read. And yeah, I, I I just keep having conversations. Hopefully, hopefully a book will emerge at some point, uh, but it'll take me time because I'm not someone. I'm not. I'd much rather spend time on my sentences. I think I've learned the value of sort of long gestation periods for books and to write them, especially through the experience of the of desperately seeking sharok. Um, and I'd like to follow that same approach. So yeah, that's that's where I am right now.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I know we're going to be there to buy your book, even if it takes 10 years. And <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. I know. I think all the work that you're doing sounds so interesting. And thank you so much for coming on today and chatting to us. It's been such a lovely conversation. But before we go, Shaina, would you be up for our wheel of questions? Sure. Happy to. Great. So to explain to our dear listeners who are first joining us today, we spin a virtual wheel of questions for our guests to answer as a way to decompress because we tend to have some heavy conversations over here. Um, yeah. And that's about it. Shayana, are you ready? I'm ready. So Shayana,
1: today's wheel of questions is if you could describe yourself in three words, what would they be? it that's tough.
2: Stubborn i'm I, I i i am i should just you know fess up to my negative negative i'm deeply stubborn i think very very stubborn curious i i'm okay. very curious uh, i ask i want to know all kinds of things about strangers i like asking questions i think curiosity is very central to me and the third would be, uh, I, I'd like to be, this is a more aspirational than perhaps I fully am, but kind. I, I'd like, I think I have some kindness in me, but I think I can be a kinder person. I think all of us can. So yeah, I, I think it would be stubborn, uh, curious and uh, aspiring to be more kind.
1: No, thank you. And I'll add it for everyone else, but she's also a female icon. thank you so much rayana Ah, no
2: thank you thank you so much such a lovely conversation thank you so much for inviting me
0: thank you thank you so much for your time and thank you for talking to us about multifaceted success and gender we really appreciated all your insights and your time to our listeners thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next season after the summer my name is ragini
1: and my name is monica See you next time.
0: Bye. Bye. We would like to thank our guest, Shayana, for taking out the time to be on this episode. We would also like to thank the LSE ID department and the LSE ID communications team under Deepa Patel. This episode was produced by co founders Madeira, Monica, and Can You Hear Us assistant producer, Ragini. It was researched by Doris Huang. Can you hear us as lead researcher? All social media is produced and released by Sanjana, the social media manager. This episode has been edited by Madeira and Monica.